0: You're listening to a message from Mercy Culture Church, home of Pastor Landon and Heather Schott in Fort Worth, Texas. For more information about Mercy Culture and ways that you can be a part of it, visit mercyculture.com. Good morning. Come on, can we give it up for Jesus this morning? He's the guest of honor. We love you, Jesus. Good morning. It is so good to be with you. And uh, I absolutely love this church, love Pastor Landon and Heather. Uh, I remember having conversations with Landon before this church ever became a reality when it was a dream in his heart, and it's so cool to come back and see all that God has done here. And uh, my wife, Jane, is uh, back home in Kalamazoo, Michigan. She sends her greetings. Been married to the same woman for 32, almost 32 years, so say a prayer for her. (laughs) <laughs> um, we have three grown children, three grandchildren, one in heaven, and two that are growing leaps and bounds, and so it's a privilege to be here. How many have ever been to Kalamazoo? Anybody ever been to Kalamazoo, Michigan? Like about four people. It's really more of a state of mind than a real place, but uh, it is where we call home. And The Lord planted us there 27 years ago to plant Radiant Church, and uh, it's been the privilege and the miracle of our, of our lives to be a part of. And uh, it's a joy to be with you this morning. If you have your Bibles with you today, I want you to hold it up. This is roll call. I like to see Bibles in church. Come on, we need a revival of the Bible. Okay, so I see a lot of Bibles. That's awesome. If you have it on your mobile device, go ahead and raise your mobile device. All right. And if you just didn't bring it to church this morning because you have it memorized and it's deep in your heart, go ahead and raise your hand, too. It's all right. Praise the Lord. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 4 this morning. Acts chapter 4, this is where we're going to be looking. And the title of my message is actually the five most threatening words towards the gates of hell. And we're going to read those words here in just a moment. While you're turning there, real quickly, I want to highlight something that in the lobby today, I may or may not have very many of these left, but I just released a book Uh, earlier this year called Give No Rest. And the subtitle of it is A Renewed Commitment to Pursue God's Presence in Prayer and Worship in the American Church. And this is a book that God gave me as a prophetic assignment to write and to help inspire and encourage the American church to return back to the vocation, back to our position as intercessors in prayer. I'm gonna share some of that with you if they're not out in the lobby you can always uh, you can find them at leecummings.com you can scan the QR code and the books are there as well as a lot of other teaching one of the reasons why i highlight that is there is there is a huge need in the body of christ right now to be called prophetically to the front lines and so all of the teaching material and messages that are on LeeCummings.com are all geared to help you do that. And this book is uh, a part of that. And so this morning, I want to share with you a message entitled, And When They Had Prayed. The five most dangerous words to describe the church. And we're going to look at why that is. But first, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, today we honor you in this place. You are the guest of honor and Psalm 22 says that you are enthroned on the praises of your people. So Lord, I ask that just as you were in worship today through the ministry of your word, Lord, that your throne would be elevated above all other agendas, all other voices, and that Lord, today you would give us ears to hear what you, by your Holy Spirit, are saying to us in this hour. Lord, we don't want to just stumble through history. We want to walk into destiny. And so, Lord, we're asking you to enable us to do that today. In Jesus' name, amen. Look with me here at Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse number 23. In verse number 23, it says, And being let go, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. And so when they heard that, they raised their voices to God with one accord and said, Lord, You are God, who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David has also said, why do the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the holy name of your servant Jesus. Verse 31. And when they had prayed... The place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things that he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common and with great power. The apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Verse 31, you find the five most dangerous words to describe the church at any point in history, wherever you find the church, anywhere on the globe. It's these words, and when they had prayed. A praying church is a dangerous church. It doesn't matter how small the church, it doesn't matter how large the church is. You see, one of the problems that we have in America is we measure how we're doing as a church by the numbers of people. We measure by numerics instead of by weight. See, when men are counting the church, God is weighing the church. Because the word glory is the Hebrew word kabod, and glory resting upon a church gives it weight, and it gives it authority and influence in a city and in the spiritual realm. So it's possible, like today, I could bring up here and I could set 10 rocks and set them on the stage and I could pour out a thousand packing peanuts. And if if the winner of who is the most important is measured by the amount, you will look at the packing peanuts and say, well, that's a win. But if I turn on a fan and I blow them at both piles, Immediately, the packing peanuts are blown away, but the rocks stay. Why? Because the rocks have weight. And one of the things that we don't see with our natural eye when we read how the church in the book of Acts operated is the church had weight. One of the reasons why it had weight, it had kabod, it had glory, is because it was a praying church. I believe that God is speaking in this particular hour to the American church, which has been an incredible blessing to the rest of the church globally for many, many years. More missionaries have been sent from America than any other nation. More Bibles have been printed. More theological works have been produced. More... Media has been produced that has encouraged the body of Christ globally, but there is a deficit, there's a deficiency in the church that God is wanting to correct, and he wants to bring us back to an Acts 4 reality that we can do a whole lot of things with our time, our treasure, and our talents, but if prayer and the furnace room of prayer is not the epicenter of everything that we're doing in the church, then we're just building packing peanut piles, waiting for the winds of culture to blow them away. God's wanting to release a greater weight and a greater glory. I want to read to you two different quotes this morning that will set the stage for what we're going to look at. The first is from a revivalist whose name was Leonard Ravenhill. He said this about the church. He said, let the fires go out in the boiler room of the church and the place will still look smart and clean, but it will be cold. The prayer room is the boiler room of the church for its spiritual life. The second quote is from a movie this last summer about the physicist, theoretical physicist, who took Einstein's theory of atomic power and brought it into reality and helped craft and create the atomic bomb that ended World War II. His name is Jay Oppenheimer. And Oppenheimer wrote this, when he was talking about the rest of the world and the impact of the atomic bomb, he said, they won't fear it until they understand it. And they won't understand it until they've used it. Theory will only take you so far. What Oppenheimer was able to do is gather the greatest minds of a generation. And he was able to take the theory and the theory that Einstein Deduced through a mathematical formulation was this. He said, Look, the, the, the most base molecular structure of the universe is the atom. You can't see it with your natural eye, but everything is built of it. And if you understand how protons, neutrons work, you can bombard an atom to split the atom and release untold amount of energy. And so everybody was content for many, many years to believe that the atom existed, even though I can't see it, and there's a lot of power in it, and it's a really cool thing, but yet we can't see it, and it's only theory. Oppenheimer said, we're going to beat the Nazis to the punch. We're gonna figure out a way to split the atom and release atomic power, and that's what happened. It ended World War II, saving thousands and thousands of lives. It's debated today whether it was moral or not. But at the end of the day, it was an incredible feat of technology. But up until that moment, it had only been theory. But when the mushroom cloud elevated up and the war came to an end, theory became reality. And I think for many people who live in Western culture, where we've been influenced by the Enlightenment, everything is scientifically driven it's a difficult task for them to understand that there's a higher reality than what you see in the natural and that there are laws that govern that realm, the unseen realm, the spiritual realm, that everything in the natural first was born out of the eternal spiritual realm. The natural realm is temporal, the eternal realm is eternal, it's forever, it's more real than this realm. But if it's only theory in the hearts and the minds of Christians, that I kind of believe that there's a heaven, kind of believe that there's a spiritual realm, and I kind of believe that there's laws like faith that govern that, if it's only theory, then we'll continue to live as if that's a fairy tale, and this world is all that there is, and then we will settle for the ramifications and we'll settle for the life that we get by only operating in the natural. And it's possible that we arrive at heaven to look back on our time on this earth and realize that we had untapped power and potential, not only available to us, but actually resident in us, but because we were trying to govern that spiritual reality by natural laws, and we never took it from theory to reality, we did far less and went far shorter than we were meant to go. It's possible that we actually miss out on the impact we were created to carry out. In 1996, I was pastoring, or I was a, a young adults pastor at a large church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. God spoke to us about moving an our south to Kalamazoo, Michigan. Kalamazoo, for those of you who don't know, is a very progressive, it's a university town. It's, I mean, like we voted Bernie Sanders. That should tell you everything that you need to know. I mean, like six out of ten people in Kalamazoo County describe themselves spiritually as nothing. And so we moved to Kalamazoo to plant a church, to start a church. I was 25 years old. Jane was 24. We didn't have any people, didn't have any money, didn't have any experience, and we didn't have a building. We were prime candidates for either failure or a miracle. And I was crying out to God one day. It was in June. We launched in September. In June, I was driving in my little 1992 white Pontiac Grand Am and driving down the highway having dropped Jane and the kids off at her mom and dad's little lake house. And I was gonna go home and I was gonna pray and I was gonna fast for God to give me a blueprint of how to plant a church, a church that would shake a city, a church that would reach young people, 30,000 college students in our city. God, how do we reach them? And I had an encounter with the Lord at about exit 119, when Jesus stepped into my car, I couldn't see him, but I felt his presence as real to me as any other human being I've ever been in the presence of. And I heard his voice, it shook me from the inside. He said, Lee, build a praying and a worshiping church. Build a praying and a worshiping church. If you'll build a praying and a worshiping church, the ramifications of that, will it will strengthen the body of Christ but it will also reach the nations of the world. So that's what we began to do. We began as a prayer meeting, and then we started our church, and the only place that we could go was a little, little area, a rural area, called Richland, Michigan, population 1,400 people, one stoplight, a subway, and a gas station and the only school that we, or the only facility we could meet in was a school cafetorium. The mascot of the school was the Blue Devils, and so the only room that we could rent to start our church in had a sign over the door that said, Welcome to the Devil's Den. (laughs) And with 70 friends and family, we started a prayer meeting in the Devil's Den, in a town with a population of 1,400 people, Eight miles outside of the city, everybody told me you're doing it all wrong, but this is where God told me to go. And today, even though I'm here today, gathered there will be about three times that will gather in one of our locations, three across Kalamazoo, college students downtown, Portage and Richland, thousands of people worshiping Jesus and praying from the heart of our city. Now I will tell you, when you hand me a church planning textbook, We did everything completely wrong. But in heaven's perspective, we did everything right because we believed that if we build a praying and a worshiping church, it would have an impact just like we see in Acts chapter four, just like we see really all around the world because I don't, I don't care what the conditions are that we find ourselves in. We can stay all day long and we can talk about how dark things are getting, how wicked things are getting, how evil things are getting in our country, and we can either wait around to get out of here or we can recognize that darkness only has permission to dwell where light has refused to shine. And in the book of Acts, the church in the book of Acts is persecuted for the name of Jesus. They're beaten, they're, I mean, Think of our level of persecution if somebody doesn't like us or unfollows us on social media. But they're beaten for the name of Jesus. They're dragged before the magistrates. They're told, don't preach anymore. And that's where we find them in Acts chapter four. They're like, God, stretch out your hand, heal, perform signs and wonders, validate. Sign off on your son's name in our city. And it says, as they prayed and when they had prayed, some things happened that resulted in a mushroom cloud of God's glory that went from ground zero Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. And the reason why we're all standing here today The reason why we're in Fort Worth, Texas today, 2,000 years later, is because a group of men and women believed what was only theory, that it was reality, and they went to prayer at one of the most pivotal times in history, and the rest is destiny. So what's it gonna take for us to shake our cities? What's it gonna take for us to reach a generation? I believe with all of my heart, it's not going to be us creating better programming. It's. I mean, I love buildings. We've got multiple buildings. I love buildings, but it's not going to be a new building. It's not going to be us imitating Disney. It's not going to be us getting slicker or better. It's not even going to be us gaining more education. We're so educated, we've educated ourselves into complacency. It's not necessarily going to take place in Washington, if we're waiting around for Washington to come up with a revival for us, then we're gonna be waiting for a long time. How many know revival comes from the church to Washington, not from Washington to the church? What's it gonna take? It's gonna take God getting the attention of a generation and convincing us of the reality of the power of our prayers and raising up a generation of intercessors and in praying churches. I believe that's what God's doing in this hour. I wanna share with you five things that I I believe, in fact, I know it's more than theory, happen when the church prays. First thing is this, when the church prays, prayer will shake us. Prayer will shake us to our core. Look at verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place where they were at was shaken. I believe for a lot, it may not be true here, it may not be true in a lot of places, but in some places because comfort has become our finish line. We've lost our tremble. We've lost our fear of the Lord. See, the fear of the Lord comes when you are face to face with the reality that God is not a philosophy and he's not an ideal, that Jesus is not just some idea, inanimate object or archetype of the best of humanity. Jesus is actually a Jewish man, son of the living God, who right now is enthroned at the right hand of God the Father, still has nail scars in his hands, fire in his eyes, and his voice is the sound of waterfalls. And the same Jesus who left here 2,000 years ago is about to come back. When you begin to realize, and when you've encountered the presence of God, the power of God, the tangible manifest presence of God meeting you in a prayer meeting, or God meeting you in a worship set, or God meeting you in your living room, what happens is you tremble. It shakes you. See, what is happening far too much is the church is getting shaken, but we're getting shaken by the wrong things. We're getting shaken by what we see happening. We see Hell's Agenda played out on center stage for us. 24-hour news cycle plays it for us. Social media reinforces it for us. We see it every day, and and what it does is it wants to overwhelm us and convince us that, that we've already lost, and it shakes us. Fear has gotten a grip on an entire generation. Anxiety has gotten a grip of an entire generation. There's more medicine for anxiety and depression that's being prescribed to Gen Z than any other generation prior to it. It's fear. It's a demonic assignment against the generation that I believe was called and marked by God for revival but yet it's gripped us and we're shaken by the wrong things. God wants us shaken, but he wants us shaken at his presence. He wants us stirred by what we see in the world, but hell wants us to be shaken by what we see in the world and he wants us to be low to sleep. But when we pray, when the church actually prays, something happens where we're shaken and we're reminded of the presence of God in our midst. It reminds me of Isaiah chapter six. Isaiah is a prophet that God raised up in Israel. Uzziah has just died and the opening verse of chapter six says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord and he was high and he was lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Imagine what it must have been like to be a prophet standing in the temple, wondering, are your enemies going to invade now because the king is dead? Who's going to take his place? And all of a sudden, you look up in the temple, and there, there he is. You see the throne of God. You see his train filling the temple. And it says that the seraphim, these angelic, fiery beings are before his throne covering their face with two wings. He's so powerful, he's so holy, they can't even look at him. And two wings, they're covering their bodies because they feel exposed. And with two wings, they're flying. And these angelic beings are crying out what we were singing this morning. Holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah sees this. The threshold of the temple shook. Shook. And then Isaiah says, woe is me. For I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips and I come from a people of unclean lips. Exposure to the glory of God restores our tremble and it shakes us. It shakes the threshold of the church. We go from Jesus being our homeboy to Jesus being Lord. We go from putting God on trial God, if you're good, then why? God, if you're holy, then why? God is, all of a sudden, it doesn't matter anymore. It's like, I'm undone. I am a man of unclean lips. I've accused you, God. God, I've taken your name in vain. I've used vain words, God. This is a prophet speaking that he's a man of unclean lips. And one of the things that God wants to restore back to the church is the fear of the Lord, the reverence of the Lord. Think about this. Isaiah sees this scene 650, 700 years before Christ. He has a disciple named John who, in his elderly years, he's about 90 years old. He's on the island of Patmos. God rips open the heavens, and he sees the same throne and the same God on that throne and the same created beings worshiping before that throne, and they're still saying the exact same thing that they were saying 800 years earlier, holy, holy, holy. They're not bored at all. They're not bored with the glory of God. You'll get get bored with the residue, but you won't get bored with the reality. And when the church prays, one of the most powerful ramifications, when we split that atom of prayer, is it releases the fear of the Lord and it shakes us. And then, number two, it emboldens us. Listen, this is the hour that we need bold messengers. It says that they began to and continued to preach the word of God with boldness. One of the things I love about your pastor is he doesn't pull back. He's bold, he's preaching, he's strong. There are a lot of preachers who preach the happy verses. You know, the chicken soup for the soul, the little Christian fortune cookie. It's like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know, put that on a bumper sticker and everybody's happy and we all feel good. And you know what that basically is? It's just hospice for the spiritually lethargic. We're just going to make you feel good until you spiritually die. We're just going to make you comfortable. When were we convinced that the goal of following Jesus was to arrive safely and comfortably to death? God's wanting to raise up a generation of bold messengers. And not just on platforms, in pews. It's not enough to have prophets and pastors and teachers and apostles on the platform and evangelists preaching. We need every member to be under the anointing and filled with the Holy Spirit speaking boldly in this hour. This is what happens when the church prays. You can't help but speak. You can't help but be emboldened by the power of the Holy Spirit because we desperately need the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit more than you and I can even comprehend. I think sometimes we, we've kind of treated the Holy Spirit like, you know, different memberships. You have the silver, the gold, the platinum, and then the legacy members of, like, you know, your club. It's like, do you want to buy a timeshare? Yeah. Do you want the silver package? Do you want the gold package, the platinum package? Well, how much does it cost? And we've been satisfied in American Christianity with the silver package. I said a prayer, I go to church three times a year, and I love Jesus and got a Bible on my nightstand, silver membership. And then there's the gold members, those are the people that love Jesus, don't swear, go to church on Sundays. And then you've got platinum members, they tithe and volunteer. And then there's like the legacy member, those are, those are the wild intercessors that pray They worship, they come down to the front, they're going for it, and we act like there's all these different categories. There's one faith. There's one faith. Listen, you didn't get the junior Holy Spirit, you didn't get the JV version of the Holy Spirit, and you don't get to pick your package. You don't get to say to Jesus, thank you for dying for me on the cross, but I'm gonna serve you with 10% of my heart. He's calling for us to be bold. And listen, you will be bold when the people that you love are threatened. I didn't even preach this stuff. I, I I apologize. I'm Some people are like classic music. I'm jazz. I just, I'm like going here. Listen, if you love Jesus, when somebody begins to criticize or take Jesus' name in a wrong way, or they begin to challenge the validity of Jesus, something's going to rise up on the inside of you. And what we need more than anything right now is a generation of people that are bold. And that happens in the place of prayer. When I was 12 years old, Jesus encountered me and called me into ministry. I was a shy kid, I was artistic, and really didn't think I was ever gonna uh, ministry wasn't my my thing. My grandfather was a, a, a Pentecostal preacher, my grandmother played the Hammond B3 organ. She had a big old beehive haircut, so my earliest memories are watching the shadow of her beehive haircut shimmy on the back wall as the Holy Ghost came in the room, because it wasn't the Holy Spirit, it was Holy Ghost. I remember growing up in church, but I was like, that's what grandpa does. Jesus encountered me at 12 years old, called me into ministry, and so I went back home to my mom's house and went to the church, and I went to this huge Assembly of God church, and I saw on the bulletin, it said, Wednesday night Bible study, and it said intercessory prayer Saturday morning. And one of the things that God had called me to, even at 12, was to prayer. And so I said, well, I need to know how to pray. So I showed up at the intercessory prayer meeting, and I was by four decades the youngest person in this prayer meeting. There were these older ladies who are now like my age now, but I mean, they were intercessor generals. And they took me and they said, honey, what are you looking for? I said, I'm here for the prayer meeting. And they said, come on in. And they just like took me under their arm. So it's me and about 14, 70 and 80 year old intercessor ladies. And that's where I learned how to pray. And baby, those ladies know how to pray. I mean, they know, how, they know how to pray through. It wasn't nice little, neat little prayers for neat little Christians. It was warfare. I saw these ladies beating up the devil in the place of prayer. Full on Assault. Boldness rising up out of this grandma. One minute she could be baking you cookies, the second minute she's like calling Shekinah glory to come fall down on a city and praying for prodigals. And they would lay hands on me and pray over me. It was it was the most marking season of my life where I learned what boldness really is, and I learned our dependency, my dependency on the Holy Spirit. We we can't have a we can't have a Christian experience. We can't follow Jesus without the fullness of the power of the Holy Spirit. A Nigerian pastor came to America about 15 years ago at the invitation of a Christian magazine to come and see the largest and the most influential churches in America. They took him on tour and showed him the churches, and then afterwards interviewed him. And they said, what stands out to you the most about the American church? And they thought, in the magazine he was going to say, your lights, your production, you know, your your properties. He said, his answer was this. He said, it amazes me how much you can do without the Holy Spirit. He said, in Nigeria, we don't have buildings like you do, but we have the Holy Spirit. He said, we have miracles, we have signs and wonders because we have to. And he said, what's missing in America is the prayer meeting." This is where boldness comes from. When you show up at a prayer meeting and you encounter Jesus face to face and you're praying with people, leaving stones together in the place of intercession on the altar, not only is it gonna restore your tremble, but it's gonna fill you with boldness. It's like the old days when you used to go to Denny's. Anybody remember Denny's back in the old days? Back when there was a smoking section? It didn't matter if you smoke or not. When you walked out of Denny's, you smelt like you were a smoker. And when you walk out of a prayer meeting, you walk out with the glory of God and boldness all over you. Prayer will embolden us. Number three, prayer will unite us. And oh, do we need unity. Look at verse 32. It says, now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things that he possessed was his own. It unifies us. It unites us. There's power when we pray together. It's beautiful when brethren dwell together in God's presence and we pray together. Can I tell you something? That there's something that happens miraculously when the church prays that disrupts the agenda of hell. Hell wants you to be isolated. Hell wants you to be selfish. Hell wants you to be covetous. Hell wants you to be distracted. Hell doesn't want you getting in the secret place with three or four or five or 500 other people and praying in unity together, drafting off of one another. Hell wants you to be isolated and divided. But when we come together in the place of prayer, it's impossible for you to hate people that you pray with. It's hard to hate people that you pray with. That's why Jesus said pray for your enemies, why? Because he knows that as soon as you begin to pray, God's heart gets in your heart, your heart gets connected to their heart. So how does the devil divide the church? Keep us from praying, keep us distracted, keep us out of the secret place. Do you know that we all have a secret place? There's a secret place that God invites us into and there's a secret place that the world invites us into. The secret place that God invites us into is fellowship and intimacy with the Father, The secret place that the world invites us to is intimacy and proximity to the spirit of this age. Whichever environment you plant your life in determines the fruit that will flow out of your life. Here's the world's secret place. You ready for it? It's right there. If your screen time doesn't equal your prayer time, then our priorities are out of whack. So here's our... Here's our secret place. We're just scrolling, we're just scrolling, we're just scrolling. And you know what we're getting? We're getting counterfeit prophetic visions from the spirit of this age trying to determine our destiny, sowing the seeds of discord, division, getting our, our, our soul realm all revved up and so distracted and so desensitized to the real thing. We have a prayer meeting. So in, in 2019, God had spoken to us years and years ago about... From the center of our city, we have two, main, two large locations in our city, and downtown, where the campus is, is it's, that's prime real estate. We tried for three years to get a building downtown, could not. During COVID, under the radar, God brought us in, we got this location, and we built a prayer room in the heart of our city. We're morning, noon, and night every single day. We have Levites that lead us in worship. We have prayer that goes up, intercession that takes place morning, noon, and night from the heart of our city. And it's a small little room. It's just this 200 seat little prayer room in the center of our city. We've got rooms that seat thousands, 1,200 at one and 800 at the other. But this is my favorite room. It's because on Tuesday nights when I go there, Tuesday nights, there'll be 13 or 14 different churches. And they're leaders and they're worship leaders. Black, white, brown, English, Spanish, pastors, worshiping, leading together over our city, praying for God to pour out his spirit, his, his, his glory on our city and over all of our churches. And there's just something beautiful about seeing churches pray together. Because in the place of prayer, it has nothing to do with our agenda. It's always about heaven's agenda. And I'm just reminded of that. What would happen in cities if we prayed together? I know that things like that are taking place here. They're taking place all around the world. But God wants more and more and more of that. He wants people individually to begin to cultivate and dig the well of the secret place in the place of prayer. Because how in the world are we gonna know who he is? if we're not spending time with him. But he's also wanting to rebuild the altar of corporate prayer in his church across America because there's unity in that. And we have no idea. Listen, it's just like the Adam. We we can believe all day long, oh, prayer is important for us. Prayer changes things. Prayer shifts things. But it's just like the Adam. It's just theory until we do it. And we see the ramifications and the impact, the mushroom cloud, the ripple effect that happens when God's people actually step into the realm of intercession and prayer. Together, united, how it changes atmospheres. God says in Isaiah 56, I'll bring you to my holy mountain and make you pray, joyful in my house of prayer. There's no greater joy. If you ask me, you can do one of, you can do one of these three things. You can either preach, lead, or pray. If you'd asked me 25 years ago, I would have said preach. If you asked me 10 years ago, I would have said lead. If you ask me today, it's pray. Because I believe more happens when I pray than ever happens when I preach. In fact, I won't preach unless I have prayed. This is where we've got to get to where we understand the power that we so desperately need that unites us, which leads to number four, which is prayer will detonate us. Prayer will detonate us. Right now, we're confronting in the Western church. We're in a, an inflection point in the American church, and I'm speaking prophetically right now. The church in America is in an inflection point. We are being confronted with our critical mess. But Jesus is doing it to bring course correction so that he can bring us to critical mass. Critical mass is the moment when an atom is actually split and power is released. In 2020, June 6, I had a dream and it was in the middle of the pandemic. My friend Larry, who's with me, we, we live in the People's Socialist Republic of Michigan, so it's not like Texas. We were like locked down. And we had just seen the George Floyd murder in Minneapolis take place, and our cities were burning in the middle of a political year. Everything was shaking. And on June 6th, the Lord gave me a dream in the middle of the night, and he showed me a storm that was coming on the horizons. And I heard the voice of the Lord spoken through a small little woman in my dream, and she said, seven days are appointed for the church, seven days for America. If I will find prayer in my church, there will be praise in the streets." Seven days in the biblical theological world is a heptad, which means an extended but a limited period of time. Sometimes it might mean seven literal days, sometimes it might mean seven years, sometimes it might mean just a period of time. I believe we are squarely in the middle of that window of time, an inflection point over America. God's like looking at us and saying, I'll move if you move. Oftentimes we approach prayer thinking we gotta get God to move. God approaches prayer saying, you finally showed up, now I will move. And God, I believe God will pour out revival on America. Listen, Gen Z and the millennial generation are the first generation in American history that have not been eyewitnesses to a revival and a movement of God. We owe them more than history. We owe them the reality of it. How's it gonna come? It's gonna come when the church goes back to the place of prayer. When we be, we resurrect the prayer meeting. We resurrect the intercessory groups. And we begin to honor those who are serving on their knees in the trenches. And we begin to equip every saint to walk in the anointing, to have a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other, to serve and to volunteer and do their vocation in one hand. But my real ministry is as a priest before the Lord in the place of prayer. This is what God's calling the church to right now. And we can either turn our ear away from that and say, no, we're gonna cruise through the 20s and everything's gonna be okay and we're gonna miss an opportunity. Or we're gonna partner with God and God's going to detonate us and release great power, healing, signs, and wonders. There's a correlation between praying churches and the Holy Spirit activity outpouring of the Holy Spirit, there just is. You can go anywhere in the world. I've been to Cuba, I've been to Russia, I've been to Ukraine, I've been to Myanmar, I've been to some of the most remote places in the world and you can find churches in people's backyards with plastic folding chairs, hiding in basements, in cathedrals and in halls, it doesn't matter where it's at. And these places have nothing that we have but when they pray, oh, they shake, they shake the building. And that's why you're seeing the miraculous that's exploding. I asked the Lord one time, God, why are we not seeing the level of creative miracles and signs and wonders here? We're seeing some. Why aren't we seeing more? And he he said this. He said, if I poured out my spirit on the American church in the conditions it's in right now, they would merchandise the anointing. They would try and brand it and make money off of it. Before he can release his glory, that would destroy us in our present condition. He has to refine us. But his goal of refining us is so that he will detonate us. I want you to imagine what God could do in Dallas-Fort Worth, in this metroplex, if he were to drop a prayer bomb over this city. Imagine what could happen if he would get a hold of his people in a very unified way And they begin to really cry out to God like our prayers really matter. It's not our plan B and it's not our secondary backup plan. It's plan A. And we really begin to bombard heaven and we begin to soak the carpet with our tears. And we begin to underline in our Bibles and stand on promises of God. And we begin to sing like Jesus is really on the throne. And we begin to pray like we know that he's really coming back and that our lives, our children's lives are really on the line. Listen, I'm not going to arrive at eternity's shore and look back at my kids and my grandkids and say, you take it from here. I took the path of least resistance. I'm going to arrive at the shores of glory with knees that are calloused and eyes that have no more tears left in them. Them, and my voice is lethargic and has nothing left on the inside of it so that my kids and my grandkids can experience the glory of God. Number five, prayer will transform our cities. When the church prays, our cities are transformed. This is what we read in the Bible it starts in Jerusalem and it works its way out. God wants to elevate. Praying churches all across America. I believe God's raising up at this hour right now, in secret. Nobody really sees it yet, but He's elevating a thousand praying-worshiping churches across America. It's like nitrogen and glycerin, nitroglycerin, prayer and worship together. He's he's elevating a thousand praying churches, and it's like he's erecting a thousand tent poles in a thousand cities across America. Some are large churches, some are small churches. They're nameless faces, nameless, faceless people, pastors and leaders and worship leaders and parishioners and people that are coming that right now nobody knows, heaven knows. But he's erecting tent poles and you say, well, what's the tent poles for? Amos 9 says that in the last days, God's gonna reestablish the tabernacle of David. David erected a tent with God's presence in it that went prayer and worship for 40 years, 24 seven. And I'm not talking necessarily just about 24 seven, but I'm talking about the glory of God over North America. And right now it doesn't make sense. It's like, look at that tent pole. What are they doing? Look at over there. Look at mercy culture over there. Why in the world are they doing what they're doing? That doesn't seem to make any sense. That's not how you build a church. It doesn't make sense until The canopy is placed and the tent poles are all interconnected and God fills it with his glory. And I believe that's what God has on his agenda as he's erecting a thousand praying churches in a thousand different cities. It's like, does it really change things though? I mean, we've been praying for years. Does it really change things? 1857 in Manhattan, a businessman by the name of Jeremiah Lampier. Left the business world and went into ministry. A church just about a block and a half down the street from the World Trade Center, where it's at today, the North Dutch Reformed Church recognized that their city of New York was in spiritual decline. So they hired an outreach pastor, and Jeremiah Lampier took the job and began his first day in September of 1857. And they said, You can do whatever you want to do, Jeremiah, but just go out and get people to come to church. We need to reach people. We want you to evangelize. We want you to go out and bring people into church. And so, Jeremiah, who is very wise, he sat down and he realized before I can effectively evangelize, we need to pray. He knew the power of a prayer meeting. And so, what he did was he built a tripod sign and he put it out on the sidewalk. Noontime prayer meeting, come one, come all. And he started a prayer meeting that began on September 23rd, 1857 at noon. And he invited people to come in. He passed out flyers and leaflets down in the basement of the church. You might think, well, that's, that's pretty desperate, but it only takes one man who believes God to split the atom. September 23rd, 1857, he had his first prayer meeting. First 30 minutes, nobody came. I've been in those prayer meetings. 30 minutes in, though, the first guy came in. And then shortly thereafter, a few more came in. And by the end of the first prayer meeting, five denominations and 17 people were present in the prayer meeting. He announced, we're gonna do this every day at noon. Come, tell your friends. By the end of March, the following spring, every single day in Manhattan, 6,000 people were meeting for daily prayer at noon in 150 different locations across New York City. By the fall of the next year, an estimated 157,000 people across multiple cities, including Chicago and Kalamazoo, Michigan. We're gathering at noon to pray. It became known as the Noontime Prayer Revival. And at that time, the population in America was 30 million people. They estimate that in a two-year period of time, as a result of this Noontime Prayer Revival, out of 30 million people, one million conversions, one million people were saved all across America just before the Civil War. And it started with one prayer meeting. One man in prayer putting up his weak little tripod sign. Come pray. Because in the natural, we can judge prayer and we can say, well, nothing's changed, nothing's different, but you have no idea behind the veil what shifts when you pray. Child of God, let me tell you something. You have the same Holy Spirit that dwells on the inside of you that 6,000 years ago incubated over the surface of the waters and called mountains into being, separated stars at 186,000 miles per second by the billions in a single moment, called every tree and every living being into, into place. That same Holy Spirit dwells on the inside of you. And when God can get that treasure in earthen vessels to align with the agenda of heaven in the place of prayer and to rebuild the altar of prayer. And then if he can get two or three or five or 10 or 200 together and pray, the power that is detonated through believing people in the place of prayer shifts atmospheres over cities. It just does. And that's what God's calling us to in this hour. Let me ask you a question. In the worship team, you can come up. What would happen if we became people of prayer in our generation? What would happen if some other things that aren't necessarily bad, might even be good, were put on the altar so that we could give God more of our time in the place of prayer? Well, I don't know how to pray. Do you know how to cry? Hannah prayed and didn't say a word. Her mouth just moved because her heart was moved. Do you know how to cry? Do you know how to get on your knees? Do you know how to open your Bible and say back to God what he's already said? You say, well, my prayers aren't eloquent. That's even better. Well, I'm only 15. I'm only 16 years old. God loves responding to the prayers of Samuels in the house of God who just simply say, here I I am, Lord. He loves to respond to to the prayers of Esthers who just say, I've been brought into the kingdom for such a time as this. I believe the church right now is at an inflection point. And much like Judges chapter six, where we find this man named Gideon, Gideon was living at a time when Israel was in the promised land, but had been taken captive by the Midianites and the Amalekites. And they went from thriving, and they went into surviving. They're living in the caves, not in homes. And they're not planting their crops anymore, because they've all been stolen. They're, They're just eating the leftovers. And Gideon is in a wine press with a handful of shucked wheat just from the the layovers, and he's hiding from the enemy. He wants to just fill his hand with a little bit of trail mix and then crawl back up into his cave and survive another day. And then in a single moment, the angel of the Lord appears and stands at the edge of the winepress, and he says, you mighty man of valor, rise up in this strength that is yours. You're going to be a deliverer to Israel. Gideon begins to argue with him, and he says, Lord, if you're really with us, why has all this happened? God doesn't answer. But God, you don't understand, I'm the weakest in my father's house, and my father's house is the weakest in Manasseh. Manasseh is the weakest in all of Israel, and Israel is the weakest nation on the earth. He's basically saying there's absolutely, positively no one more unqualified than me to do what you're calling me to do. And he says, you don't need all of that. Gideon, I will be with you. My presence is all you need. And I believe right now Jesus is standing on the edge of the wine press, maybe for many in this room, but definitely for the church of Jesus in America. He's standing on the edge of the wine press, and he's looking at us, and he says, how long are you going to be satisfied? With just a little bit of grain in your hand. It's time for the harvest. You mighty man and woman of valor, rise up in the strength that is yours. I'm gonna use you to push back the enemy and to revive a sleeping church. I believe he's saying that right now today. He's on the edge of our wine press. And he's saying to us, saying to you, you mighty man and woman of valor. Are you gonna be satisfied with scrolling through others' highlight reels? Or are you gonna turn your face upon Jesus and look full in his glorious face until the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace?